It is Wednesday, November 29th, 2017, and this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I am Stephen Cox, your host. Hello. On this week's show, we speak first with Susie and Eric Levine, two Obama administration officials who are working closely with both former Attorney General Eric Holder and President Obama in their fight against gerrymandering. Then we talk with Democratic candidate for Congress in the 5th District, Lisa Brown. All that, and we have our Indivisible member profile. So one of the things that has given Democrats hope over the last year is news that the former attorney general, Eric Holder, along with Barack Obama, will be teaming up to take on the problem of Republican gerrymandering with what is called the National Democratic Redistricting Committee. We are joined now by two people who will be working closely with them on that project, Susie and Eric Levine. Susie is the former U.S. ambassador to Switzerland, and her husband, Eric, was appointed by President Obama to serve as a member of the United States Holocaust Memorial Council. Susie and Eric, thank you both so much for being here. Thank you so much for allowing us to share our passion. Well, it, it actually is a, is a very worthy passion, and I want to get into the, the real particulars of it. But before we begin, I, I think that I should mention that both of your full CVs, are they're just a mile long and also include a ton of work in the private sector, including here at Microsoft. And then you've both been recently recruited as deputy co-chairs of the DNC Finance Committee. So how did you wind up getting recruited for the fight against gerrymandering? Well, I'll I'll go back to, in serving our country um, under Obama, very humbly and and proudly, we fell even more deeply in love with the United States than even before we had. And we had already noticed back in about 2012 the effects of gerrymandering that happened in 2011, and we can talk in more detail on that. And we started asking some people, hey, what's being done in advance of the next census, when after that census there will be a redistricting process. And we didn't get a lot of answers. People weren't so focused on it, but we weren't really feeling the effects quite as strongly as we have been now. And we decided when we got back from Switzerland to really dig in and understand, all right, this gerrymandering is one of the core poisons right now for our democracy. What are we doing as a nation and what organizations are doing smart strategic work to help fight this? And where we netted out was that the National Democratic Redistricting Committee, NDRC, under Eric Holder, is really functioning as the quarterback for this effort among Democrats. The Democratic Legislative Campaign Committee, DLCC, which focuses on recruiting and getting state legislators elected, also has an important part to play And the DNC, the Democratic National Committee, also has a really critical part to play. And so we really have stepped up to take roles and become involved in each of those organizations since we returned. Well, so you touched on this uh, very briefly, but I want to outline the problem as it presents now in 2017. I think people have a basic understanding of how Republicans have redrawn districts in their favor, but they may be unclear on when and how it happened or actually how big of a problem it is. And you mentioned the, the 2010 census and the redistricting that resulted from it. Can you walk us through this briefly? How did we get to the place where Republicans have managed to gerrymander so much of the country in their favor? Okay, so let me take a stab at this, so brief civics lesson. So every 10 years on the decades, we nationally conduct a census, and then that kicks off a process in each state that 
allows each state to redraw its boundaries, both for, for at a federal level for the House of Representatives, but down at the state level for the legislatures and state Senate seats. And, uh, you know, we're in a federalist society, so each state controls how this works. It happens that in the majority of the states, it's the state legislatures that have the primary control over this process. Gerrymandering itself is something that goes back more than a century and a half. Right. Um, and, you know, it's politicians choosing their voters rather than the other way around. I think one of the major things that has changed is the access to data that goes beyond sort of the public voter roll data, but so much data in our lives about social media usage, credit card usage, etc., and how that is combined in really, really simple ways that uh, makes this much more dangerous and much more cynical. So... Let me give you sort of a, an example of just one particular state, and this goes on and on throughout the country. Now, by the way, historically, both parties have done this. Right. I think what we saw in 2010 was a uniquely egregious example that has really sort of broken or warped very key elements of our democracy. So, for example, in the state of Pennsylvania, if you look overall at the votes of you know people when they're voting for the House of Representatives, you're going to tend to see in most elections in 2012, 14, 16, about 52% of the votes going to uh, Democratic candidates for the House at the federal level. Now, in uh, Pennsylvania, they've got 18 people that they send to D.C. for the House of Representatives. So you would assume, you know, that should break out about 9-9, right? right? Now, the reality is, even though more than half the votes are going for Democrats, right now Democrats control just one-third of the seats, six out of the 18. Um, and so, in fact, one quarter of the entire current Republican majority in the House of Representatives comes from that alone. And you see this actually just sort of the top four most gerrymandered states basically account for the Republican majority. It's, it's basically structural. And we first saw this, and, and then I'll sort of ease back on the numbers, but it's most stark when you look at 2012 and 2014, so in 2012, as President Obama was getting reelected for his second term, as the Democrats were making progress in the Senate, which are all statewide races, um, in the House, they actually got about a million and a half more votes, if you just look at votes cast for candidates for the House of Representatives, and that netted to, I believe, a 24-seat minority. So how do you get a million and a half more votes and lose? 2014 was the worst minority for any party in the House of Representatives in 88 years, and the Republicans and Democrats basically split the vote. So the majority, the, the, the democracy is kind of broken in one of the critical branches of government. And how 2010 happened was basically the Republicans put $30 million into state-level races, both for state representatives and senators, as well as for attorney general races and state secretary races. And that's a tremendous amount of money into those state races. And they were very surgical in the races that they invested in to focus on those places where they could flip a legislature in order to then take control of that redistricting process in 2011. And frankly, I think that they were more successful than they even realized that they could be and then they locked it in with the races in 2012 and beyond. 
Yeah, it's actually frightening just how effective they've proven to be. Um, so moving into the positive, I'd like to outline the strategy for fighting back against all of this. Uh, Eric Holder has laid out a four-pronged approach that includes litigation, mobilization, reform, and targeted elections. So I, I would love to briefly walk through each of these. Uh, with litigation, I imagine that Eric Holder has a team who will be bringing legal challenges to unconstitutionally drawn maps, yes? Absolutely. In the litigation space, the NDRC is driving active litigation in North Carolina, Virginia, and Texas, and recently filed its first lawsuit over racially gerrymandered state house districts in the Atlanta suburbs, and is also looking at assessing ballot initiatives in Michigan, Ohio, and Colorado. So that's in, in the legal space where they are heavily focused. Great. I think, as you know, there's currently a Supreme Court case um, where they have been also helpful with getting amicus briefs filed, etc. The the key basis for the current suits uh, goes back to um, uh, civil rights and the fact that you can't racially gerrymander. You can't pack a district to disproportionately represent or to underrepresent Hispanic or African American folks. Uh, the Wisconsin Supreme Court case. Uh, has to do with partisan gerrymandering. And so that's a whole new frontier, but we can we can circle back to that. Well, and I think that it's very interesting that a lot of these battles may wind up being in cities, right? And part of what makes a lot of this very unwieldy for the Democrats representationally is that blue voters tend to cluster in cities, whereas red voters tend to spread out a little bit more. So it makes it a little bit more challenging, right? Well, you know what, that the trope of we have sorted ourselves in a way to disadvantage ourselves, you know, yes and no. Yes, that's the case. But when you look at the incredibly, I'll use the word Eric used before, cynical districting lines that have been done, oftentimes you actually have very thin lines connecting multiple cities, or you'll have pieces of pie taken out of certain cities in order to remove voters from a place where they might lead to a majority of Democrats. I think Austin's an example where they've taken Austin and they've managed to slice off big chunks of it into three districts that go out very far, very rural. The idea is, you know, take a bunch of those Democrats and spread them out real thin like butter over the toast, and but, but sort of uh, dilute their votes. Right. Um, so that, you know, there's a couple of different ways that they either pack and stack or dilute the Democrats so that they have less voting power, both at the federal as well as at the state level. But I think what we saw in this most recent Virginia election was both very encouraging yeah. and it's incredibly motivating because of how hard we must work in order to overcome what is now at about a seven-point tilt to the field. And you're talking specifically about the House of Delegates races that were won in some pretty heavily gerrymandered districts, right, in, in, in Virginia? Uh, those, those House of Delegates races, but I'm also talking about the gubernatorial race there and in New Jersey. Uh, what you have is a race where overall, the, um, overall there were 9%. We won by 9% at both the gubernatorial, and the legislative level in Virginia. But, and Republicans only won 44% of the votes for the House of Delegates. But, so that's exciting, right? We really turned people out in an amazing way. Eric and I even were knocking on doors in Loudoun County 
you actually had an incredible coalition of organizations, including indivisible groups from New York coming down. You had the National Democratic Redistricting Committee and, and Eric Holder knocking on our doors. You had incredible efforts coming forward to turn out votes. All of that still led to a split 50-50 in the House of Delegates. Best, best case. And best right case. now it's 49. Right. They're going through some recounts right now, I understand. But yeah, mathematically, it doesn't make sense. It's much like what Eric was talking about in the example of uh, Pennsylvania, too. So, yeah. yeah. So we, we see what the what the work is and what we certainly see what the problem is and what the, the, the work that there's a lot of work there to be done. Um, I want to talk about reform efforts. And this has to do with drawing fairer districts within states. And I guess from a practical standpoint, you've, you've outlined the problem, but how, how do we do this? How do we actually get these lines redrawn? So, A, you win. <laughs> In 38 different states, there are, the efforts are done by the state legislatures. You also have that in 38 states, not the same 38 states, the governors have either they can uphold or they can veto those maps. And so we want to take control of as many of those state legislatures and as many of those governorships as we can. That election started this year in New Jersey and Virginia. Those governors are the equivalent of 13-year governors, meaning that their legacy will include upholding or vetoing district maps for the next 10 years after the 2011 redistricting process. We will have in 2018 another 36 governors up for election, and about 322 state senators who will also have an effect on those district maps. So win is one of the top strategies, and that's an electoral strategy, and that will require every indivisible member from across the United States to get out there and knock on doors. Well, you actually, you were talking about my next point, which was going to be mobilization, but I think you've you've hit it. So yeah, in, in addition to, I, I know that a lot of people who would like to get involved are thinking, what can I be doing? And so you're saying the most important thing that they can do is get involved in these local and state elections. Absolutely. And But I, before I get into that, though, the other big thing is going to be, and the NDRC is really at the forefront of this, is increasing awareness of and accountability for that redistricting process. I know Eric and I personally, in 2011, we have here in Washington State a bipartisan commission for redistricting and they held probably 10 to 12 different uh, hearings. We didn't attend any of them, and nobody that we know attended any of those. I'm sure that people did, but even folks who were heavily aware of the political process, we weren't tuned to it. And you could argue that ours was about incumbent protection here in Washington State, and we could do a much better job in our redistricting process. So how do you increase awareness of and engagement in and also provide models that will make sense for to, your, to use the word that is so important that you use now is fairer districts. This is not about moving it left. This is not about keeping it right. This is about having them be fairer so that we can have better outcomes and make sure that our elected officials have an incentive to listen to all of their constituents and not just a subset of their constituents. So the Fourth prong of the NDRC approach is targeted elections, and we've touched on this a little bit, but I, I'm wondering if that means that we're talking about extra resources being directed toward these races that we see as pivotal in being able to uh, shift the, the lines a little bit. Is that one of the ways that we'll be uh, targeting these elections? 
I think the, I think the key thing is what you're saying is targeting and knowing what are the right elections, where where with either the right incremental resource, the right incremental organization, um, you can win the elections that need to be won to flip a legislature uh, or you know win win a key seat that will really make a difference because in again in some states. Uh, the, le- the state legislature doesn't matter. In other states, it's incredibly critical. And it's also looking at what are the states that are most gerrymandered, where with, again, incremental progress, we have the opportunity to, to really fix a map. Well, so you both work in technology. And uh, Susie, you've written that the GOP had better tech in winning their races. Um, how did Republican tech win the day? And what can Democrats learn from that? So, in fact, the Republicans first learned from the Democrats. Uh, Barack Obama and the Obama campaign had incredible technology in 2008 and in 2012. And um, and then the Republicans deconstructed and reverse engineered how President Obama won. And they then invested about $175 million into their technology. Uh, a lot of that, for example, coming from the Mercer family and building out Cambridge Analytica in bringing together data to be very surgical in this effort in looking at demographics, who's going to vote, who's not going to vote. And it was a combination of how do they do very targeted turnout, but it was also an effort to how do they suppress turnout in key areas and in key demographics. And so they've been very successful in using their technology that way. And what the DNC is really heavily focusing on is building back the democratic technology to be able to help people as volunteers, as voters, and as donors, and to make sure that in the coming elections, technology is our advantage, and we plan to leapfrog what the Republicans have been doing and really drive huge turnout. Because you know what? When Democrats turn out, we win. You know, you mentioned the DNC, and uh, as I mentioned in the intro, you're both uh, co-deputy national finance chairs. There's been a lot of dirty laundry about the DNC, specifically around the run-up to the 2016 election, most recently with the revelations in Donna Brazile's book, and we don't have to get into that. But how would you like to see the DNC move past all of that and maybe even reinvent itself moving forward into 2018 and 2020? So I think first and foremost, one of of our core assumptions um, is that if we're going to win at a national scale, if we're going to win in 2020, we need a strong central party. Um, I think the way we're doing it, and you know, we are particularly inspired by Tom Perez and, and interacted with him in his prior role as Secretary of Labor. Um, what the DNC is incredibly focused on is uh, really rebuilding the state parties over the course of, uh, and, and so investing very, very heavily at a, at a, at a state level. Um, we already talked about sort of building technology and sort of the core platforms for the 22nd century that all of the different democratic grassroots and other organizations can take advantage of to win. Ultimately, if you look at, uh, you know, how we're going to win both in the House and in the Senate and beyond, a lot of 50% of the people in Congress started in their state legislatures. And so during the last decade, we lost almost 1,000 people at that level of government. Wow. We basically lost our bench. And so the DNC is very focused on developing the next generation of Democratic leaders. You know, it's amazing that 2020 will mark the first election in more than 40 years where millennials age 18 to 34 will surpass baby boomers as the largest generation of eligible voters. And so how do we reach out to to those folks to inspire them and have an unbelievably open and transparent 
process ultimately as we go to nominate the next Democratic uh, candidate for president in 2020. But really, it starts right now from school board to all the way to Oval Office, every zip code, 365 days a year. There's no more sort of on years, off years, just presidential years. It's every one of these races matters from the school board on up. And so that's sort of the real focus. Excellent. Well, so look, I know that a lot of people listening right now are very intrigued by what you're saying and are looking for ways that they can get involved. So where can they learn more about what you're doing? So the NDRC has an excellent website that they can go and look at. And, um, and so that's one of the key places to look. But just to be clear, what the NDRC is doing that we really appreciate is applying a very specific lens of redistricting. How do you prioritize the races, races on which you're focused based on the impact to redistricting. So it is a subset of elections that they are really heavily focused on. For example, the Moncadingra race in the 45th district was not interesting to them because that was not going to impact redistricting. And what we are focused on in addition to the, this redistricting effort is the broader point that the DNC has, which is every zip code. So we would encourage your listeners to, yes, focus heavily on where can we affect redistricting because that will repair the foundations of our democracy and at the same time to know that every zip code counts and people can get involved and plan to get engaged and go out and mobilize and get people elected again from school board to oval office locally but also if they want to get involved nationally they can look at the ndrc website they can look at the DNC website, which will connect people up to those opportunities. And then one other place to look is the DLCC website that has spotlight races for state legislators across the United States. So those are three of the places that they can go and look for how and where to get involved. And, of course, Indivisible itself is doing a lot in local races. And there's a number of other organizations that are more than happy to put people to work Again, right now, our recommendation is that people plan a week or two in the summertime for doing voter registration in key states, and then a week in October to go and do voter turnout in those same key states, and to also plan that they're going to be doing phone banks, that they're going to be volunteering locally and nationally, because that's what it's going to take. When Democrats vote, Democrats win, but if we don't turn out, then we're not going to win. Well, I want to thank you for bringing that all together so succinctly because it it actually paints a very broad picture of the many approaches that uh, Democrats are going to need to employ to be victorious in 2018 and 2020. So, uh, Eric and Susan Levine, I, I want to thank you both so much for the work that you're doing and thank you for joining us on the show. Thank you so much for what you're doing and for helping get people motivated and excited because it's going to take all of us to win. Ditto. Lisa Brown is running for Congress in the 5th Congressional District, and she joins us now. Lisa Brown, thank you so much for being on the show. Stefan, I'm happy to do it. So I want to start with your background. Uh, it's impressive. Uh, you were elected to the State House of Representatives in 92. You then went on to the Senate in 96. You were elected as minority leader in 2002. And then in 2005, you became the first Democratic woman to uh, hold the position of Senate majority leader. You also have a PhD in economics. You have taught at both Eastern Washington and Gonzaga. And you are currently chancellor of Washington State University. 
University in Spokane. Um, do you sleep at all? <laughs> oh, so, well, I, I did leave my position at WSU Spokane uh, when I uh, announced for Congress. Oh, okay. And so I am, I am full-time, uh, actually, probably for the first time in my life, uh, full-time just engaged in running for Congress. When, when I was in the state legislature, as you mentioned, it's a citizen legislature, so I was always teaching uh, either for Eastern or Gonzaga during that period of time. So just one project now, and it's a big one. Yes, it is. Well, so, you know, I think I'd like to start here. So given your academic background, what prompted you to run for Congress in the 5th District now? I guess I had considered it off and on over the years. This seat used to be held by Tom Foley, mm-hmm. he the Speaker of the House, and um, was really revered um, locally and, and nationally. And I was in the state house when he lost back in the 1990s. And ever since then, people have suggested that I might consider running for Congress. But I always appreciated what I was doing at the state level and the work that I was able to do here in Spokane with WSU helping to get a medical school off the ground. It just always seemed like I could make a bigger impact by sticking with what I was doing. And then uh, the 2016 elections happened, and it occurred to me that the place I could make um, the biggest difference was at the federal level, especially given that our current representative has really shown very little independence and is, in fact, part of the House Republican leadership that has been, uh, as you know, working um, uh, on priorities that really don't fit the state of Washington or eastern Washington, uh, particularularly health care, but then there's a whole list of other of other issues as yeah. well. Yeah, and I do want to jump into those. And of course, you're talking about Kathy McMorris Rogers. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, I think I'd like to start uh, on a policy discussion about tax reform because that's what's on everybody's mind right now. And, and Kathy McMorris Rogers has been an enthusiastic supporter of the current tax bill that the GOP is currently trying to jam into law. Uh, so, two questions here. First, what would you do as a legislator to push back against what the GOP is doing with this, uh, quite frankly, very unpopular tax bill? How, how would you fight it if you were in D.C. right now? Well, I think it's important for people to realize that although there is conversation as if it's helping the middle class, it's it's really slanted towards the top and the personal income tax Benefits, if you want to call them that, are temporary, whereas the business tax reductions are slated to be permanent. So, yeah, you called her out on that on Twitter, actually. Absolutely, absolutely. (laughs) That is, it's so it's not helping the people who need help the most. And more education about that, I think, is is what we need to be doing right now to turn this around in the in the U.S. Senate. But but secondly. It's uh, not fiscally responsible at all, adding a lot to the national debt, 
without any clear benefits in terms of growth in the economy. Right. And and then finally, there are these specific provisions that are not good for students, not good for uh, agriculture, and certainly not good for people in eastern Washington uh, with respect to um, things like taking away your ability to to deduct the interest on your student loans and and things like that. So uh, given your uh, extensive background and PhD in economics, I'm curious to hear you briefly outline a tax reform bill that you would favor. We don't need to get into the weeds, but what what would be a couple of key components in an ideal tax reform bill for you? Well, certainly eliminating a lot of the loopholes that are currently in the tax structure. Um, Most of those are designed for specific industries or corporations, and eliminating those would bring in additional revenue, so we wouldn't have to shift more of the tax burden onto the middle class. And then ultimately, I think if, if the goal is to stimulate jobs and the economy, that investments in infrastructure and people through education is the right way to go versus using tax policy, which ever since the 1980s and trickle-down economics was tried the first time, we realize it's not, uh, it, it, it doesn't stimulate the economy. It does make the already wealthy wealthier. You know, in terms of this being a campaign issue, uh, a number of op-eds have posited that the Republicans are kind of in trouble no matter what happens with this tax bill. If it passes, it'll hurt working and middle class families and it will erode their support there. Um, And I don't want to gloss over the fact that there is a real human cost there, but just in terms of the politics. And and if it doesn't pass, then the Republicans go into 2018 with no legislative victories. Without, uh, Without tipping your hand too much, what is your approach as a candidate if it passes and what's the approach if it doesn't? Well, either way, um, Representative McMorris Rogers has already voted for it, as she did for the health care reform, that so-called reform, that also passed the House, but not the Senate. So no matter what ultimately happens, and I certainly hope the bill is substantially changed if it does, in fact, become law, but either way, it is... Uh, up to me to point out to people in Eastern Washington that she's out of touch with our priorities and in fact is is in the leadership of a Congress that's putting forward these kinds of policies um, with very little distance between uh, her and the Trump administration. And I really feel like most people in Eastern Washington understand that 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 these are not the priorities that they that they have. You know, you mentioned healthcare, and that's something that is absolutely on people's minds. Um, that was a focus of yours during your time in Olympia. You were instrumental in passing the Mental Health Parity Act of 2005. You passed legislation that uh, created the nonprofit Prescription Drug Assistance Foundation. I'd like to get your thoughts on healthcare on a national level. Given what is currently happening with Trump and the GOP and people like Kathy McMorris Rogers trying to actively tear down the ACA, uh, most recently with the proposed repeal of the individual mandate in the Senate bill, uh, it's 
rather uncertain right now what the situation might look like in 28 in D.C. But I'll ask you, how would you propose fixing a program like the ACA? I mean, even even Obama said that it wasn't perfect. Oh, absolutely. Uh, There are changes that need to happen. Uh, I would start with not losing important aspects of our healthcare system that we currently have in place that are now in jeopardy. So the Children's Health Program is an important one that's set to expire if it's not renewed by the end of the year. That's known as CHIP. Known as CHIP. And um, stabilizing or not allowing uh, the Trump administration's policies to try to destabilize existing insurance markets or exchanges, as they're called, would be really important thing to do. But then we need to go forward and build upon programs that um, uh, are universal and um, which have proven to provide a higher, more standard level of care for people, such as Medicare. Hmm. Uh, We could certainly expand the coverage of Medicare to a to a larger group of, of people in the country. And if, if you think about something that would really benefit small businesses in particular, it would be creating options that people can buy into and start to de-link uh, health care uh, as an employment benefit. Now, I wouldn't interfere with existing benefits that are, that are done through collective bargaining. That's obviously between the workers and their employer. But if you, most small businesses really bear the burden of either uh, trying to keep up by providing health care in a way that's that is, as other countries have shown, we don't have to have um, health care linked to employment. It becomes an additional cost for employers that if we could um, have public options available to all would not be necessary for employers to bear that cost. You know, there was uh, some debate even among Democrats when the ACA was being crafted around the individual mandate, and that has come up again. Uh, I'll just ask you flat out, do you support the individual mandate as a way to, to make the program work? How do you see it? Well, in economics, we call it the free rider program. If you If you have a situation in which People benefit from a system that they don't contribute to. And I, I think most people in this country uh, support and understand the concept of contributing uh, to the healthcare system if you have that capacity to do so. And so I think that employed individuals should contribute to the healthcare through system through one um, means or another, but having a public option available for all so that there is an affordable option is, is a key part of that. Um, I do believe that many people right now uh, see the system as, as very unaffordable based on their uh, income level. And I sympathize with them. Um, my son is in his twenties and he'll lose my health care coverage as soon as he t- turns 26. Right. And yet he's a musician, um, has several different employers, none of whom are going to provide health care for him. And so to tell him to go buy health care, I, I sympathize with um, his, 
you know, unwillingness to do that, we need to have a system available that gives people a real option. You know, another issue that is uh, on the decks right now is net neutrality. Um, It's particularly troublesome given what we know about Russian bots interfering in uh, the 2016 election. Um, Given some of your uh, tweets and statements on the matter, I I know that you don't support the FCC's move to undo net neutrality. Does the the FCC have too much latitude to make this sort of decision unilaterally? How would you fight back against something like this? Well, I think that it's a matter of public policy, and so Congress should weigh in on this specifically. And unfortunately, Representative Morris Rogers is on record as applauding the FCC's moves here, which, again, I think is wildly unpopular uh, as soon as it's explained to people what um, what shutting down net neutrality really means in terms of of charging them for various levels of service it's um it's just completely in the wrong direction and you have to ask why would a a congressperson especially representing eastern washington where issues of of broadband are so significant to our future economic development um, why would she applaud these rules? And it leads you to, to think about, well, either what kind of information is she getting or is there influence from campaign donors that's causing the House Republicans to go in, in this direction and not and not take this on with the FCC? It does make you wonder. (laughs) Um, So, you know, during your tenure as majority leader uh, in the state Senate, you had a reputation for breaking legislative logjams. The partisanship in D.C. right now is at, uh, I think it's fair to say, uh, toxic levels. How would you work to change that dynamic? Well, one of the interesting things I learned in the legislature is that um, you can find common ground with people across the ideological spectrum if you if you work at it. And that doesn't mean you will agree on uh, everything. In fact, there, there can be really significant disagreements, and yet you can find other issues you can work together on. And that was the key to making investments in eastern Washington, transportation investments, higher education investments, those kinds of work. That kind of work was done uh, working across the aisle. And so I would take that same approach to Congress. It might sound a little naive to think that this ship can turn around, but I believe it can. I think think the, the 2018 elections, what I foresee is people standing up and saying, we don't support this uh, sort of winner take all approach to politics uh, where we're not working across the aisle to get things done. And I'm, I'm hopeful that I can be part of delivering that message uh, personally uh, in Washington, D.C. And if there is a Democratic majority in the House, uh, that message may resonate uh, a, a little bit more uh, strongly. Uh, you know, the elephant in the room, of course, is Trump. Um, a lot of pundits read the results of the recent off-year election successes by Democrats in Virginia, uh, New Jersey, and elsewhere as being a referendum on Trump. Uh, do you see it that way? Is Trump a liability for the GOP? I think that he 
has proven to have a loyal group of supporters, and presumably um, many of those are here in my district as they are across the whole country. But I think for most thoughtful and independent um, voters, such as I think we have um, so many in in the state of Washington, I think they're really concerned, uh, as, as I am, about the lack of civility, the lack of of integrity in the statements that are made coming out of the president. And um, public office is a it's a responsibility and it's also a privilege that that voters give to someone when they cast the ballot. And um, frankly, I'm appalled at the way the president has um, utilized his his platform to denigrate his opponents and to play fast and loose uh, with the truth. And I think I think many people in this country are are similarly appalled by that. And at a certain point, we have to question our representatives in Congress who are silent about it, because at a certain point, it becomes complicity with his attacks and his his method of operating. You know, you, you mentioned your district and you mentioned the fact that there are Trump supporters within your district. And I, I kind of want to drill down on that just a little bit. The politics have really changed over the last few decades. Um, as you mentioned, it was once Democratic House leader Tom Foley's district. Why do you suppose the district's politics have shifted over the last 20 plus years? Well, East the district is is 10 counties in eastern Washington. It's a very diverse district geographically and politically. Uh, Spokane uh, is is here, the second largest city in the state, but we also have very rural parts of the district as well. Right. Northeast Washington has a lot of public land. Southeast Washington, a lot of agriculture and the wine country in Walla Walla. Uh, I think that the um, the split occurred when rural voters began to identify with Republicans, uh, and that urban-rural division has been accentuated with with specific issues over the years, and that's one of the things I'm trying to take on in this campaign. Urban and rural areas need each other, and the people in urban and rural areas actually appreciate each other. And so to some extent, I think it's a false division, and uh, some of the responsibility uh, on this has to has to go with, with traditional uh, Democratic Party politics that I think have often written off rural areas instead of looking at ways to de- deliver um, both messages and uh, concrete results in rural areas. Well, I, I think that's really the, the probably the greatest challenge of your campaign, right, is, is crafting a message that will appeal to both the Democrats in Spokane as well as, say, the independent or moderate Republican or even Trump voters or maybe Kathy McMorris Rogers voters. How do you put forth a message that will unite and, and bring those sides together? 
Well, first of all, I speak from where I come from. So I grew up in a small town in a rural area in the Midwest. I went to 4-H. I was a first generation. Yay, I, I was in 4-H too. 4-H is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so so um, I, I don't see the same kinds of divisions that some might see perhaps if they didn't have the same kinds of small town experiences that I've had, but also... Uh, the kinds of things I was able to work on in the legislature were not just about urban Spokane. For example, we worked on uh, farmers markets and utilizing um, food benefits in farmers markets. That 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 was originally um, a pilot project in Northeast Washington, and um, I worked on things like um, creating a veteran's home in eastern Washington. Um, those kinds of issues are not about uh, urban versus rural. They're the kinds of things that people can identify with because most people have veterans in their family. Right. Most people have ideological differences in their family. So I'm not emphasizing the party as much as I am the things that people in eastern Washington care about, which is their community and, and the land and the lakes and, and the quality of life here. And um, everybody cares about um, whether or not they have a secure retirement to look forward to and whether or not their kids and grandkids will have, will have health care and uh, affordable higher education. And you're out there talking to voters uh, right now, I, I can assume. Is that the sort of things that voters in the rural areas in your district are saying? Yes, I mean, I've been in Republic and Chihuahua, Colville, Spokane Valley, Walla Walla, et cetera. And I do hear about health care everywhere I go. Everyone is feeling health care insecurity. That is a that is a universal issue that requires a national a solution. And so that is definitely at the top of of everyone's agenda. But Economic opportunity is something that matters a lot to everyone, whether you live um, in a city and you're worried about the cost of living or whether you live in uh, a small town and you're wondering about the opportunity for job growth. Uh, the economy is a, is a big deal. And then the other thing that's universal is the desire to strengthen our education system from early learning all the way through through graduate school and, and medical school, like like the one we just started here, headquartered in Spokane. So the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee recently targeted the 5th, uh, along with now the 8th and the 3rd here in Washington, as being winnable districts. The 5th the actually was designated after the November elections. Uh, have you been in touch with the DCCC? What sort of assistance uh, are you anticipating that they might offer to your campaign? Well, I, because of my time in the legislature, I'm um, friends and uh, know well most of our congressional delegation. And I, I served with um, Representative Kilmer. I helped recruit Representative Jayapal when she was first considering running for the state level of politics, worked with Representative Delbeni, Representative Heck. So um, and certainly our two senators. So yes, uh, I have used them as sounding boards and for advice in this congressional race. And 
to help reach out and achieve this national level of support. Well, so uh, if people are liking what they're hearing, how can they learn more? Uh, where can they donate? How can they get involved and volunteer? All that good stuff. We would, uh, we would love to have people check us out. Uh, you can go directly to our website, which is lisabrownforcongress.com. And that's uh, easy, lisabrownforcongress.com. But we also are on social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and uh, would really appreciate people reaching out and helping to spread the word about our campaign. You don't have to live in eastern Washington, although I know many indivisible uh, supporters are in eastern Washington. There are very many indivisible groups here, but you can, there are many people who don't live in eastern Washington who certainly care about its future and have connections or family here. So so please get involved. We'd, we'd love to hear from supporters all over the state and region. Terrific. Well, I will be uh, supplying all of those links to the SoundCloud and the website pages. So uh, Lisa Brown, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Stefan. And we will end this week on our Indivisible member profile. I have been to Resist Trump Tuesdays since the 24th of January, um, and I had not had any political motivation. I just became a citizen a year and a half ago, having lived here for 20 years, and I became politically motivated because I didn't want my children to lose their health care. And I went to visit the senator staffers on a Tuesday, every single Tuesday, to go and directly communicate with them because Seattle Indivisible organized it, so we kept going. It's been incredibly motivating. We've had some huge successes. We now have a meeting every single week because we persisted and we kept going. And I think that feeling success is, is, is key to keeping motivated. We've had a bill co-sponsored, S27, looking into investigations with Russian ties um, and, and hacking in the election. Um, and I run the Indivisible Group uh, as part of a team on Bainbridge Island. My name's Holly Brewer, and that's why I'm part of Indivisible. If you or someone you know would like to be featured on the Indivisible member profile, the email address for that is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you want to learn more about the show, subscribe, do all that good stuff, head over to indivisiblepodcast.org. And uh, do keep the emails coming. I really love them. If you have suggestions for guests, segments, whatever it is, hit me up. Again, that email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. And uh, if you want to catch me attempting to wax clever, my Twitter handle is at indivisiblepod. So there you go. The executive producer is Aaron Albanese. Thanks again to my guests, Susie and Eric Levine. Thanks to Lisa Brown. Special thanks to Erin Ross for her help. And thanks as always to you for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye.